Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast about the intersection of science and spirituality. I am Fel, and I will also be standing in for Astra today. Oh, but yes, I'm Fel. And I'm Honey. And I think I, I could, what happens here? I think we cut to the like intro song. Okay. The current date is July 4th. So this will be the episode in which I tell Henny that she's no longer allowed to have any sort of taxation without representation over me. So I will be leaving the podcast uh, right now. No, I'm just kidding. Um. <laughs> the tea has been thrown into the harbor. It's, it's chaos over here. Yeah, the fight is going to be played. It's, it's absolute, <laughs> <laughs> absolute madness. Penny will do our what happened on this day. Okay, so as mentioned, it's the 4th of July. And on this day in 1868, it was the birth of the American astronomer Henrietta Swan-Levitt. Henrietta was known for her discovery of the relationship between period and luminosity in Cepheid variables. Uh, Cepheid variables are pulsating stars that vary regularly in brightness in periods ranging from a few days to several months. Levitt's greatest discovery came from her study of 1777 variable stars in the Magellanic Clouds. She determined the periods of 25 Cepheid variables and in 1912 announced what has since become as the famous period-luminosity relation, which is basically that since the variables are probably nearly the same distance from the Earth, their periods are associated with their emission of light as determined by their mass, density and surface brightness. So today, the period-luminosity relation that she discovered is used to calculate the distances of galaxies. Now to take a total detour from that, <laughs> what is today's episode? It's trees. Yes, trees. Very broad. We're probably going to end up deep diving onto a number one of these topics, anything that stands out to you guys or to us. But yes, we're covering uh, trees uh, in the occult and sort of any relation between... Uh, there's a lot of relation, actually, I would say, between trees and the occult. But why trees? Why did we choose trees? Thank you to Ruby for suggesting this. So basically, we found that when Ruby, Ruby suggested this as a topic because of, there are a lot of associations between trees and the occult. And then when we dived into this, there's actually a lot more than we expected. So it was going to be a mini-sode, but then as is the usual for us, um, it turned into an entire episode. To, to start off at a much more, I don't want to say basic level, because I, I that implies that there's something about it that's not important, but that's very much not true. I guess fundamental level might be a better word. Trees and folklore, what are just some common myths, folklore, etc., about trees and are there any common themes? So I would say that we're in kind of a symbiotic relationship with trees and we have been since pretty much the dawn of humanity and this is probably why they appear in so many myths and there are lots of themes that I think kind of permeate through a lot of our different folklore so one of them I can think of is Yggdrasil which is the world tree in uh, Nordic mythology it's a giant ash tree and it literally supports the universe and the nine worlds in Nordic mythology and the expanse between the roots and the branches it provides a literal divide between heaven and earth but as well as this, the tree provides a framework for communication between heaven and earth. So it's kind of a divide, but it's also communication. The life of the tree is intimately connected to the survival and the progression of life. When Odin hung upside down for nine days and nine nights, the imparted knowledge can be related to how he interacts with the tree. And later, when the serpent Nidhogg starves the roots of Yggdrasil, the world's end is nigh. And also the, the three fates tend to the needs of the world tree. So it demonstrates the intimate connection between the fate of the tree and the fate of those who dwell with, um, within it. So it's almost kind of relating um, how we as humans relate to trees, like they're, they're important to our survival. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see these kind of um, similar themes throughout that expand to other folklore, and particularly 
if you have a tree on your land in Nordic mythology, it's supposed to sort of represent Yggdrasil and it provides a home for land spirits. So another one would be the Garden of the Hesperides. So the Hesperides are goddesses of, of evening and sort of the specifically like the golden light sunsets. And their big thing in their garden was that they grew golden apples. Now this might ring some bells for people because the golden apple is what started the Trojan War in which the goddess of discord Eris uh, went to a, a wedding that she was not invited to, tossed it in the middle, it said to the most beautiful, and a fight ensued. And the only person who could decide who uh, was the serving of the apple was Paris. And he struck a deal with Aphrodite, basically being like, I'll call you the most beautiful. And in return, she gave him Helen. Thus, the Trojan War. So I, I this doesn't really play um, that much i would say into like the actual ancient greek religion but it is a important an important uh, mythological symbol that comes up again and again so there's also the tree of knowledge in christian religion which basically if you don't know the apple from the tree is a forbidden fruit and eating that apple is supposed to um impart knowledge but it's also forbidden knowledge and this maybe sort of semi-relates to those themes as well that we see in North, Norse mythology with the the tree imparting knowledge do you think that there are parallels between this and the garden of the Hesperides or do you think that that is merely coincidental I think that's merely coincidental I mean there is the tree of knowledge or specifically the tree of knowledge of good of evil that's also shown in some uh, Jewish traditions specifically Kabbalah. Uh, it's also seen in Islam. However, in Islam, it's a it's a little bit, it's less like the knowledge of good and evil and more the tree of immortality. In that story, it's like instead of devil or, or Satan or a devil as a snake coming to them telling you, hey, you'll have like knowledge that God doesn't want you to have. In the Islamic version, it's that if they ate from the tree, they would become angels or immortal. Similar ideas. This also shows up in Gnosticism, and probably not surprisingly, actually, this is this tree is seen as sacred and positive in a lot of Gnostic sects. Some aspects like Manichaeism is considered like almost an aspect of Jesus himself. There's definitely a, a running theme of this through uh, various Abrahamic religions. Some people have tried to link it to Assyria. However, the scholarship on that is is dubious but i don't think it comes from the ancient greek religion it doesn't seem to have any parallels if anything it, it actually has parallels to the norse however they were so far away that i i don't think that there's necessarily a cultural crossover more like what's that word like spontaneous no there's a, it's not spontaneous well in evolution it would be convergent evolution i don't know if that applies right to there's another word people. with uh where something's invented at the same time, which explains how sometimes people do just come and invent the same thing or roughly the same idea. You could also get into like the proto-Indo-European whatever, but that's a whole mess for another time. I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Like I think that trees are just have been so important to life across the world that a lot of concurrent themes have emerged spiritually, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have a common theme. Right. I mean, trees definitely seem to have a lot of knowledge attached to them i think probably a lot of this has to do with like the fact that trees have very deep roots and they're very old for the most part so i think that's where a lot of that comes from i mean we even on our like modern mythology modern folklore like the giving tree is very much a tree of of knowledge in, in many ways and just knowing sort of what someone needs 
So some other themes I can think of are the acacia tree in um, Egyptian mythologies. This comes from A Tale of Two Brothers, and in this, the life of the individual is closely bound to the life of the tree. And you can also see this in other, other mythology where people often cut down a tree and they become cursed as a result. And this sort of relates to the idea of trees being sacred, or sometimes even trees as um, animistic entities. So they are a home for spirits. This might be a home as a kind of sacred space in Druidism, in Hinduism even, or sometimes trees themselves were seen as oracles. So there was an oracle in Greece in Dodona, where um, the tree itself would be a home for a, a, a kind of oracular spirit. And so sometimes sacrifices would actually be performed within a sacred grove to sort of placate the spirits within, so to, to allow the trees to be cut down. So what would you say that the kind of key themes, like the key emerging themes from all of these folklore would be? I mean, definitely knowledge, I would say, is, is a big one uh, that you see across pantheons. I mean, also, we, we could literally be here. We could do an entire episode just on the folklore of trees because there is so much. Each A lot of different trees represent different things, which we'll kind of talk about. And they're also often kind of seen as connecting us between like, like, you know, Yggdrasil is connecting the different worlds, the world tree, even to some degree, the tree of life in Kabbalah, right? That's also kind of like connecting different dimensions. So I think they're also seen as bridges between different worlds, the spirit world and the physical world. I think there's this interesting duality where they are represented as connecting different aspects of the of the world, whether that's spiritual and physical, or maybe in a more literal sense, being sort of central to an ecosystem, which we'll talk about later. But also as divides as between between these areas, so they're kind of they're very liminal spaces in some ways, and I think that this is kind of key to their their role in folklore and why they seem so so prevalent. There's also uh, on our list that we have the cycle of death and rebirth that is seen a lot in Greek myths, like a lot. <laughs> there are so many myths of individuals being turned into trees. I mean, the laurel, the Daphne, she dies as a mortal. Uh, some versions, she's a nymph some person she's a human woman the thing is she could die so she dies and is immortalized kind of forever as this tree the same things ha happen with murrah where we get myrrh from you know she dies she is and in like saving her she is transformed into a tree so that's a very very common trope in greek mythology of people dying and becoming trees and then kind of living and dying forever Okay, so we, we kind of chose to focus a little bit on Celtic sacred trees because there's so much folklore here, but there are also lots of caveats to talk about historically. So we like to focus on Celtic sacred trees, but before we do that, it's important to bear in mind that a lot of our knowledge on Celtic mythology is limited. And this is because Celtic refers to different peoples. It's not, it doesn't refer to like a single people in a single geographical location. It's many different ones. Um, it's also largely orally passed down. So it relies on onomastic evidence, evidence that was written by external parties like post-Christian Anglo-Saxons and also from modern practitioners. Well, there is some limited evidence to suggest that sacred trees were real and votive offerings were made. But yeah, the scholarship is, is not as extensive as maybe we would like. Just take everything that we're about to say with a big grain of salt. There's also like specifically been in when it comes to tree lore of what people like to call Celtic paganism. Some of it is nonsense. I would say a lot of it is nonsense. But there are some that have, have root uh, in truth. Huh. I, I didn't even mean to say <laughs> <I'm gonna laughs> <get a> pun. <laughs> maybe we should branch out into a few more um, puns. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Thank you. We're here all week. 
<laughs> One like really classic example given is how important trees were in various different Celtic religions is the Ogham alphabet. I actually don't think I'm pronouncing that right. I think it's more like Ogham. Yes, I'm sure that we will receive a, a written correction from someone if I have got this wrong. But basically, this alphabet is one where the letters correspond to different trees. And the evidence that we have for this comes from early Irish and some even Old Norse poetry. However, so it, it, at the time, it was thought that every letter in this alphabet corresponded to a tree. And this was work done by early medieval scholars. And this myth has kind of persisted into modern day. And it's even influenced some strains of modern Druid religion. Like Druidic reconstruction is just, there's often like a lot of flight and fancy in there. That's all I'm going to say. Um, but basically modern scholarship of this, um, particularly the Briathorogam, suggests that only around eight of these letters refer to trees. I mean, this, this is still an extremely important role, and I think it speaks to their importance within folklore and just daily life. But yeah, just important to note that a lot of the stuff that you'll see in modern folklore comes from these early misconceptions. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe we can do like a like hit and go kind of thing where it's like, what do you think this correspondence is kind of thing? So the first one is ash, the ash tree. What, so what do you think of initially before, like, without even like reading the document? What's okay, the I'm not going to read the document. Gosh, wow. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin with the ash tree. Because the only thing I know about ash trees are from ancient Greek mythology. Specifically, like, the, the ash tree nymphs are their own kind of nymphs. I'm just going to pull things out of thin air. Knowledge rebirth maybe so the one that i that comes to mind for me and this is probably quite local to me in kind of the uk would be um protection against witches so i think that there's something to do with if you plant an ash tree it's supposed to protect you against witches but as is the norm for things that are supposed to provide protection they're also associated with witches paradoxically and i couldn't exactly find why this is as to why it would confer protection but um yeah that's that's one of the traditional associations at least where i live well, for what it's worth, MagicalSpot.com told me <laughs> that ash trees Sounds really reliable. have to do with rebirth, so I'll say that as a win. Okay, so we're, we're, we're not for one right now. Okay, uh, Apple, what about that? Oh, gosh. Fertility. Yeah, yeah, you're correct. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest one, I think. Maybe some protection, too, because I think apples are sometimes used in protective charms. I think so, yeah. And also um, immortality. I think we talked about this earlier. Like, yeah, like obviously you know. from like the folklore. So this is probably like a very literal interpretation that came up in folklore. It's also some sources suggest that it was used for the ones of Druids. But again, this is something that I couldn't really find very much older evidence for. So I think it's quite frequently used in sort of reconstructionism. Hazel. Knowledge of some kind. Correct. Frequently the hazelnuts. I didn't know this actually. This is, this is completely new to me, but I was researching this and apparently hazelnuts were used as a source of occult knowledge so it's like associated with with occult wisdom and the uh, imbibing the nuts would be a source of knowledge which i guess kind of relates to like the apple thing with like if imbibing the fruit confers right. the knowledge of the tree onto you but yeah i guess i will be uh, consuming more hazelnuts in the near future and they were also used as divining rods and possibly again as wands but there's not a lot of scholarship okay what about older i feel like i'm taking a test that i'm taking a test that i didn't study for <laughs> <laughs> hmm, maybe protection banishment? So this one is associated with death. Mm -hmm. And the only reason I could find for this is because they are linked to water. So they're, um, they basically grow in riverbanks a lot, and I've noticed that around here. So I can only think that maybe this association grew because people would drown a lot near older trees. <laughs> and um, it was just, it, it kind of built up over time. I'm sure there are others, other associations too that um, I didn't manage to put in, in here though. Okay, easy one, maybe. Elder. Is that wisdom? It's fairies. Maybe not super common where you are. But it's, it's, it appears in a lot of fairy lore. 
Um, so particularly like liminality and like transition between the land of fairy and the land of mortals. So where Thomas was seduced by the fairy queen and was transported to the other world, there's a tree there called the Ildon tree, and that was thought to maybe be an elder tree. And in fact, in the UK, it was even forbidden to burn elder because it was thought to offend the spirits. Interesting. I don't even know if we have elder trees where I live. Do you not have an elderflower? I don't know. No, that's so sad. You don't have elderflower cordial that you can make? Wow, I gotta send you some, I think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like the, it's the best thing about like early spring. It's, it's my favorite thing to make. Okay, oak trees. Now, this is interesting because I know in ancient Greek mythology, oak trees are associated with Zeus and are specifically associated with divination and oracles. I think that, yeah, that is definitely, definitely accurate. I think it's weird because like oak trees have, as far as I could find, they have like lots of very similar associations across the board. Like they're often associated with like fatherhood, like large kind of like paternal figures, which kind of fits with the Zeus association. Often sacred groves, the limited evidence that we have, suggest that sacred groves would be populated with oak and they would form a meeting place. There are Celtic deities that are associated with oak and his blood water. Oh no, I, I like this. I put this word in the document and I don't know what it means. It comes up. Oh yeah, the um, the flower, Welsh, Welsh flower goddess is made of oak apparently as well. Um, so yeah, so it's a lot, of, a lot of it though is more like strength, paternal figures, divination, that kind of thing. Okay, maybe we'll just do like two more. Okay, Blackthorn. I feel like this has got to be associated with something negative or like not necessarily negative, but something baneful magic of some kind. Correct. Well done. Okay. So yeah, this binding, ill omens, and those witches. The thorns specifically are often used for puppets. I guess it makes sense that something that has big angry thorns would be associated with baneful work. They also have very astringent berries, which are used for slow gin, which is very delicious, by the way. And I think maybe that could contribute to these kind of associations. Also, some of the folklore of the Caliph, who's a, a Scottish goddess associated with winter, describe her as having a staff of blackthorn. So it's this idea of like strength and harshness and strife, which um, I think is quite common. Okay, last one, you. I think you is kind of like a pretty bitter, because it's usually in folk songs, it's usually um, tied with a bunch of other bitter plants. It is poisonous. So yeah, it's bitter, but you wouldn't live very long if you had it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I, meant, I meant bitter as in like the emotion of bitter. Yeah, no, I, think, I think you're right though, because it is it's like very negative associations, like painful work. Often used as a one material, but often thought of like, as like a saturnine, I guess, because of this kind of death association, basically. Now I have one for you, willow. What is willow? Oh, that is interesting because I know that willow is definitely associated with water. And so I think of like water and I think of emotions and divination, like sub the subconscious. I know also that it's used for healing because of its, obviously it produces naturally salicylic acid. Did I get any of that right? Yeah, I think one of it's probably, it's at least when it comes to um, like tree symbolism, it is also heavily, heavily tied to death. Maybe it's the riverbank thing because people would just die nearby. Um, a lot of it too is the way that willows look weeping willows because they look like they're they're crying even in some more modern naive modern like pussy willows are are associated with easter because they're associated with death and rebirth but yes willows are often in folk songs you'll hear them spoken of like in 16th and 15th century folk songs you hear them talk about as a as a plant of death but yeah so grief and emotions all of that that makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, I think we, we've maybe shown up our lack of knowledge here, despite both having a document <laughs> in front of us, which tells us exactly uh, what it is. But I mean, I think that the point comes across, like, there is a ton of folklore, and it's often related to, like, just our very human relationship with these really old plants. Okay, so now to move on from the more folklore aspect and into a more fun, science-y, kind of, like, still-developing 
field of studying trees of ecology, and that would be tree communication. And by still developing, I mean, people have known this for a while, but people are now starting to get the funding <laughs> to be able to, uh, and the care to be able to actually research this in depth. So a lot of this information comes from a book called Finding the Mother Tree by Suzanne Simard. Uh, yeah, this book is basically, it's written by a researcher. She, she was initially working on, she was like a, working on a forestry plantations, and she was noticing that a lot of her trees die. And basically she went on to do some research on mycorrhizal fungi, which we'll talk about a lot. Basically found out how trees function as part of like entire ecosystems rather than just simply individuals in their in their own right so it's a really really interesting book and it's got lots and lots of kind of spiritual parallels in i would say so definitely worth a read but yeah i think we as we've seen trees play a kind of central role in a lot of folklore but the idea of them kind of connecting different realms it also extends to our sort of scientific perspective so what kind of communication do we see between trees one of them is crown shyness so do, do you know what this is Val? trees are are very all truistic i don't know it's like they're, they're almost like interlocking the way that their crowns i guess is that what the top of a tree is called yeah so like the canopy the canopies at the top yeah they don't i'm making motions with my hands as people can see me but like they don't intersect they don't crowd each other out they're like puzzle pieces almost yeah, yeah that's a really that's a really good way to describe it actually so it's like when you look up if you if you imagine that you're on the forest floor that's not a nice image. And then you look up at the sky, you imagine seeing like little gaps between the canopies of each tree. It's not really clear why this happens. It just, we know that we know that it happens and there are a few theories. So one of them is that it's to do with the wind and that's just kind of abrading the sides of the trees. But that's not really very well backed up because in windier areas, you don't seem to get like more crown shyness, for example. So it's thought now that, like you mentioned about trees being very altruistic, the trees are actually able to sense light and they deliberately don't grow up against the edge of each other and the reason for this is that there are plants on the forest floor which are kind of symbiotic to the trees so they're helping by providing kind of a leaf litter they're helping by maybe some can break down nutrients that other uh, that the trees themselves would not be able to do and by allowing light through their canopy to support plants on the forest floor they're contributing to a kind of stronger ecosystem in general next one is chemical communication and I've actually been able to see this happen on some of the trees that I have live near me I guess that also technically works they are alive <laughs> trees that are are near me so this is this kind of idea that if one tree gets infected doesn't just like affect that tree it affects the whole ecosystem now it's not like it's like poisons the whole ecosystem oftentimes trees will kind of siphon like they I don't know they release some sort of chemical they have some sort of response to this this is oftentimes like if you see especially for those of you who live in like disturbed areas areas that have been disturbed oftentimes you will see certain trees oh, forget their words but it's like they get these big bubbles on them and they start oh, having like, yeah. yes there you go they'll start having like kind of like weird growth like oftentimes that is a response to a stressor and sometimes if one tree has that a lot of them will start kind of getting that if the if they get too stressed so that is something that you can actually see happen i've seen it happen like in my own area watching how the trees kind of respond to the stress of each other yeah something that's really cool about this as well is um, again it kind of goes back to this like altruistic relationship thing is that when a tree is dying it will secrete defense enzymes um, in response to this pathogen to kind of signal to other trees that and support their immune system but also when a tree is dying sometimes it seems like the nutrients from that tree will be exported to other trees and this happens via mycorrhizal networks which we'll talk in, in a minute but it's basically like i guess maybe it kind of relates this 
death and rebirth thing that we were talking about, but it's almost as if the tree is like giving up its life for the rest of the the population, which I think is incredibly metal. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's just really, it's really cool. So um, it seems like they can kind of sense when they're dying and contribute to kind of population health by just donating their nutrients. What I think is really interesting, I learned this through one of the documentaries I was watching, that trees oftentimes will communicate with stumps, which is why it can be important to not disturb the stump. Even though they recognize that this tree is dead, dead, the tree's not actually dead because it is being sustained by the other trees. It's just not going to, like, no, nothing's going to grow out of that stump, unfortunately. But the stump is still alive. It's a thing, and it is still a part of that network. It is still like a, a, a connected system. So they actually found that trees were communicating with trees that had been cut down, and kind of using that almost as like a I don't know. It almost be like an operator, I guess. If you're like calling someone, the stump's like, oh, here, let me transfer you to this tree. That is so so cool. I didn't know that, yeah. but like it makes like lots of sense. That's... Yeah, because especially if you think of like how much of a tree's well, like how much its footprint is actually taken up by the roots. So a stump right. might look really small, but actually like it's it's contributing to a huge mass underneath the ground. So I think the uh, the next thing we want to talk about, and it's related to this idea of the communication under the ground, is a symbiosis with fungi, um, otherwise known as mycorrhizal networks. And this is the topic of the book that we mentioned a lot. So a mycorrhizal network refer, uh, refers to a mutualistic relationship with um, a certain type of fungi, and this is as opposed to saprophytic mushrooms, which kind of decay wood. They, um, it has, a, has a, a symbiotic relationship. So this can be within the root cells, which would be ectomicrosobial, or it can be um, outside of them, which is endomicrosobial. And sometimes these fungi can contribute to the growth of mushrooms, but they don't always. And basically, these networks allow for nutrient trade between two species. So when two different species are colonized, like pine and alder or birch and fir, nutrients like carbon and nitrogen can be passed across. So this is kind of, this sort of explains why you find that biodiverse forests can flourish a lot better than ones that are monoplanted, not only because they're more resistant to disease, but because you have this transfer of nutrients. And the way this was demonstrated is actually really, really interesting. So what you do is you provide a radio-labeled nutrient to your source, and then you're able to um, pick up the radiation in your sink. So you can give the radi radioactivity to the pine, for example, and pick it up in the older. And if you do that to trees which are not colonized with these mycorrhizal fungi, there's no transfer. So it's showing that these fungi are kind of contributing to that. Do you have anything to add to this? Um, I mean, just how freaking cool mushrooms are, man. I, I, love, <laughs> I love fungi so much. <laughs> it's just crazy. This was mind-blowing to me. Like, people basically call it the internet of the the forest floor essentially um or the world's oldest internet it's just amazing to me like all of the stuff that they've been able to one of the things is it is it is hard to um, like i mean they've done tons of like studies on transplanting trees sometimes it can be difficult when a tree is transplanted and it isn't doesn't grow up organically in the forest it hasn't yet been colonized it hasn't yet gotten connected to the to the network i mean i think that's one thing that people are focusing on now is like how do you introduce new trees into this system can you create this system like can you add fungi to an area uh and create the system obviously with concerns of deforestation those kinds of figuring that out is, is very important, I would say. Cool. And I think it's also important to point out that this knowledge is kind of treated as scientifically new and it has kind of been shown in a scientific way more recently. But the idea of trees being able to communicate like this and it being intimately related to fungi in the soil was actually 
known by indigenous people in the US, for example, the Coast Salish people, for a really long time. So it's almost like we're, I quote, rediscovering knowledge that was already there. And so I think it's good that we know this now because we can support better forest growth. But it's also important that we kind of pay homage to the people who, who have been saying it for many, many years. So why do, they, why do the mushrooms do this? Well, they get nutrients from the exchange. So if you, if you bear in mind that trees for photosynthesize, obviously, because they, uh, you know, they're receiving light and water, they produce sugars. And because mushrooms respire, so they rely on sugars to for the respiration, these sugars can be kind of hijacked by the fungi. And also the mantle of the mycelia of the, of the fungi is able to laminate minerals in the soil. So it holds onto water, it holds onto minerals, which otherwise might be leached away. It just... It's just generally good, man. <laughs> and the other thing is that this whole sustained network contributes to kind of hubs and nodes. And as Fel mentioned, this can be dead trees as well. It can be stumps. Both old and young trees form these, these networks. And the oldest trees, uh, which are kind of a pinnacle in the network, are known as mother trees, according to this book anyway. And so there's a quote here that kind of explains her view on this, which I think is quite, it's almost like semi-spiritual the way she describes it. She says, the old trees were the mothers of the forest. The hubs were mother trees. Well, mother and father trees. Blah, blah, blah. But it felt like mothering to me. The elders tended to the young. Yes, that's it. Mother trees. Mother trees connect the forest. This is kind of like this idea of this altruism by these older trees, which almost direct the whole sort of concert, which I think is really, really, really cool. The one other thing that Suzanne mentions in this book, is her name Suzanne? This is, yes. <laughs> one other thing that Suzanne mentions in this book is how these networks could even be perceived in a kind of animist way. And I think this is interesting, but... I also think we have to kind of critically appraise the way she describes it. So basically, she says that these networks um, at least physically resemble neural networks in our brains. And so there's not only do do the roots of the trees actually physically resemble neurons, but they transfer nutrients like glutamate. And our brains also transfer glutamate um, as a sort of form of uh, signaling as in our, across our synapse so she's basically drawing these comparisons between neurons and roots and sort of implying heavily heavily implying that there is some kind of consciousness present there as a result and i guess that sort of speaks to animist views on trees what, what do you think about this idea i mean it's a it's a very interesting idea i remember watching uh she was on one of the interviews in one of the documentaries that i saw I don't know. I like to think it's kind of cool. I mean, it's kind of wild like that. Mm, there is something about it that just feels very conscious. Like the fact that they like don't touch each other or they're like purposely not crowd out another species food. I mean, I'm not saying I mean, it's like you'd have to redefine consciousness. But like the fact they're sending messages essentially across a, a network speaks to me of some sort of consciousness just not in the same way that like we we would look at it as like a a mammal or something we've always thought that of trees as knowledge centers so to me it kind of makes sense (laughs) from a more animistic perspective yeah I think I agree with you with your take like I think the thing that stood out to me is that it's not really the same as a human brain and so I think that her comparisons between like the glutamate transfer are maybe a little bit too far because she's kind of actively saying that the mechanism is the same and I, I don't think that's accurate and I think, at least speaking from my own animist experiences, the the spirit of a tree just feels very different to a human. So it's almost like a certain level of anthropomorphism can only go so far, if that makes sense. I think that the idea of consciousness and animism is really neat and something that I agree with. But consciousness in like a very like 
literal material way, I think I'm a little bit less convinced of, if that makes sense. I, every time I try to think of the word hedge witch or try to define the word hedge witch, my head just hurts. To me, the way that I have most often seen it described is someone who exists on the borders or the liminal spaces. I think hedge witches often have more in common with tradcraft practitioners than they do more Wicca-based witchcraft. It, it seems more like a, a bordering on like a mix of tradcraft and folk witchcraft than uh, sort of the, the pop secular witchcraft I, and i don't mean that in a demeaning way i'm just there there is a very distinct difference i would say between tradcraft and like what is often shown as witchcraft on the internet or not even the internet but just like in culture in general so to me hedge witches and how i've seen them define people like ride the hedge usually solitary often has to do with crossing borders spiritual borders between uh, this land and whatever the other world is that's like a very loose definition because i have seen people use different definitions yeah I would, I would definitely agree with that definition I, I sometimes see people conflate it with hearth witchcraft which to me seems like a completely different thing like I think of hearth witchcraft as more like a very like home related and um it's actually it's, it's almost the opposite like it's nothing to do with the, the transition but it's more to do with kind of your your locality you know I was gonna say I don't I don't think hearth witches are and are all the same that's very wild they very much seem like two polar opposites like the hearth witches like the Baba Yaga, um, the no, not Baba Yaga. What's her freaking name? Strega Nona. That's her name, not Baba Yaga. Very different. I would say maybe that would be the difference. Would be Hedwig. That's a really like good Baba comparison, Yaga. actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where Baba Yaga is like kind of like the typical, you know, witch figure uh, living on the fringes of society, kind of haunting. Uh, and then Strega Nona would be more like a hearth witch. For those who don't know, Strega Nona is like kind of like a a witch like figure in a series of like children's books where she's literally just like a hearth witch she just like makes and something always goes wrong like she like has never ending pasta and like someone messes it up and now the entire town is flooded with pasta like it's witchcraft but it's very like yeah very like homey it's gonna get across the hedge to buy some spaghetti (laughs) (laughs) yeah um so to me they're very different that's kind of bizarre that people kind of see them as related yeah, it's really it's a it's a really weird conflation. I'm not quite sure where that came from, but um, yeah, I agree with your definition where it's kind of to do with like crossing boundaries and the hedge is sort of almost metaphorical. But I kind of wanted to talk about like the importance of a hedge and like where this came from. So why hedges? Like what what's the relevance of these? Like I I got the impression that they're quite like a local thing. I could actually be completely wrong about this, so please do correct me if that's the case. But yeah, I get the impression that hedgerows are sort of a a, a UK specific thing in certain ways, or maybe maybe Western Europe specific. Um, but basically, if you don't know, a hedgerow is distinct from a hedge because it's kind of made up of multiple species. Um, it was classically used as a land divide for farmers' fields. Because of this, it's it's kind of come to associate like boundaries, liminality. In fact, they're, they're naturally trained structures over many years. So it's not just like a big block of privet, but it's a polyspecies community. And it's often got like hawthorn, beech, field maple. Um, it's often got lo- lots of understory plants like wild rose, cow parsley, sometimes even like holly or even oak. And they're really, really robust structures as well. They're not just like simple hedges. I even was reading that during uh, World War II in Normandy, the Axis forces required specialized tanks <laughs> to, in order to take down the hedgerows because they're so, like, they're trained and they're so strong and robust. And I think that kind of speaks to the importance of them as physical divides. Not only that, but they're very important ecologically. So over 500 plant species, 60 species of nesting bird, hundreds of invertebrates and almost all of the UK's naked small mammals have been recorded and supported by hedgerows. So they're, they're just really, really, really important, like little niches um, 
especially in areas where ecosystems are otherwise declining. They're like really, really important connections to nature. Oh, I forgot to say as well. Um, one thing as well, which I think maybe connects them a little bit to liminality is the fact that they're often modes of transport for animals. So if you imagine fields that are basically kind of ecologically dead, like they're, they're made of like a monoculture of corn or whatever, or we don't even grow corn, corn here, um, <laughs> like wheat. Often hedgerows as these ecologically diverse systems are places where mammals can actually trans- uh, transport themselves. So like he- like um, hedgehogs, for example. So that mode of transport is almost makes them important as a liminal space. That's very interesting too, because like, just think about how they're very difficult. Like the tanks couldn't take them down. It means they're very difficult to cross. So I think that that also seems to add to like the difficulty. I mean, because if you look at hedge crossings, you know, it's not supposed to be something very easy. It's often fraught with dangers. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's very interesting. Yeah, when I think of hedge crossing, yeah, for sure. Like I think of like, being i think like thorns and i think of the strength of the hedge and how maybe i'm not explaining this very well but yeah i think i think it's weird because the hedge is is kind of downplayed in this popular conception as just like 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 a leafy structure but actually it's it's a really important like strong thorny liminal space which is um not really very well understood not to completely derail the, the wonderfulness of this conversation, but I did find a blog post titled 17 Signs You're a Hedge Witch. Okay. So this is going to tell us what type of witch we are, Henny. Okay. okay, please, please go on. Okay. <clears throat> Number one, you're mostly solitary in your living style, either by choice or by life circumstances, which have made it so. That's a very bizarre way to say that. Um, okay. So yeah, I get, uh, I don't know if I'm actually, no, I'm actually not solitary at all. Who am I fucking kidding? <laughs> So no point for me there. One point for me. Okay, one point for you. You live on the edge of town or on the edge of an ecosystem. Um, No. Do do we not all, in a way, live on the edge of an ecosystem? I guess I would say no. Like, I live in town, so yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I live in a literal city. Number three, you have known guardian spirits who protect your land, and some of them are animals. I'm not sure about that one. Yeah, I don't know about that one either. This one, we're, I think both of us will get. Number four, you have an interest in herbs and people come to you for herbal support for wellness. Well, I don't know about that second part, but I definitely have an interest in herbs. So I have one point. One point, definitely. Again, this is like more high half witchy, but anyway, I digress. So. Don't worry about it. Number five, you've taken classes in environmentalism, horticulture, herbalism, or natural resources. No, I don't have a point. Does microbiology count? <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? Okay, okay three points, three points. Wow, you're doing way better than me. I like how this is like like it's a quiz. Number six, you were born into a family that prioritizes gardening, growing your own food, and herbal folklore. That's kind of bizarre. That does apply to me, though, but that Not implies really. some very weird things of being born into that. Yeah, it's impli- it implies like a weird like like lineage type thing, but yeah, no, not yeah. me. Okay, number seven, you are aware of a variety of herbal pharmacopoeia that ease occasional most anything. That's a not a sentence. <laughs> I think they mean like you know herbal treatments to for various things. Yeah, I'd say I know that. I love that they just yeah. chucked the Greek in there for a second. Like <laughs> I was like, why would you say it like that? Okay, so I have three. Number eight, you have fondness for animal guides, earth spirits, or fairies. Yeah, I, mean, I think so. I guess so. Number nine, you have a connection with trees and feel at times they have communicated with you. Yeah. Well, accurate, yeah, clearly. Okay. Number 10, you know how to identify a variety of different plants in your neighborhood or at herbal shops. Yeah, 100%. That's me. Yes. You know how to get information intuitively, clairvoyantly, or astrally in your dream state. Absolutely fucking not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sorry. (laughs) 
I mean, it, it requires like a, a, a really large amount of mugwort to <laughs> do that. Okay, number 12. People come to you for answers on existential topics, the meaning of life, their sole purpose, the reason for a terrible existence. Okay, that's weird. That only experts ought to know how to respond. Who does this apply to? Like, yeah, who is like a cult leader? Like, <laughs> okay, you have a knowledge of resources for empathic protection, psychic protection, and spiritual protection. I guess so. Mm, yeah, and I don't know about empathic protection, but or yeah, psychic. Maybe. But I do know spiritual protection. I guess half a point. charms. Okay, number fourteen. You know how to read communications from the animals, including wild birds and mammals. Um, Me too. And, I mean, I know how to read like communication from my cat that he's hungry. Like, that <laughs> I what got, do you mean, like um... spiritual? I got bitten by a fox a little while ago, so I don't, I don't know if I can, I can be trusted around wild animals, but yeah, we'll say yes. Okay, number 15, you have a strong connection to forest, water, and geological structures. I mean, if you say no to that, like, that's just, come on, that's just baiting people. Okay. Number 16, you know how to channel life force energy and can call it into yourself for healing purposes. Nope. Absolutely not. Number 17, now this is connecting it to hearth witchcraft which is interesting the kitchen area is where you prefer to keep the bulk of your spiritual or herbal supplies i mean like i don't prefer to keep it there but it is there i mean where, where else are they gonna go yeah but again like what, what what about that is is hedge witchy like there's not a lot of hedgy stuff in there in my opinion oh okay this one talks about calling okay uh first of all what, how, what was your number what did you get i think 9.5 okay i got eight so you are a hedge witch congratulations Annie. <laughs> um, you passed the test <laughs> so it says uh, one of the best ways that you can develop your abilities as a hedge witch is to call in the archangel Raphael um, so there you go. where did this come from I don't know. <laughs> we are blending all types of traditions today <laughs> so there you go uh, um, everyone you can play along at home I guess tell us tell us your score you, uh, how many hedge witches do we have amongst our listeners yeah or more importantly go and support your local hedgerows because they are important as both a liminal spaces but also because they are really important for your local ecosystem I guess we can close out talking about how trees are important to us Take it back down to a more serious level. We had our fun. Uh, I feel like this is an impossible question to answer because it's like saying, like, how are the stars important to you? You know, you know what I mean? Like, it's, they are so integral to um, just right. life on Earth in general. So it would be... Really I mean, I guess a better question might be, how do trees show up in your practice? I guess might be a better way. I find that trees are important from a knowledge perspective. So they are often um, in kind of animist practice that I engage in. They're somewhere that I would go to if I had a spiritual question to like meditate underneath or uh, maybe even communicate with. And so then the idea of the kind of knowledge that we talked about throughout the rest of the episode really, really resonates with me. Also from a kind of environmental protection perspective, I guess, I think that for me, that's really integral to my practice. And so the idea of protecting entire ecosystems is very much directed by these large old entities. Um, and that's something that I'd like to keep like further i guess for me like besides an environmental perspective trees are very much like allies in the sense of like i see them as being deeply connected to the earth and deeply connected to deities that uh i i worship and i honor i mean trees show up in literally like every single type of mythology and folklore i don't really like i don't use any aspects of trees like any physical well actually that's a lie i use sweet gum seed balls but yeah for the most part trees are, are more just kind of like a way to connect 
to the natural world and to the natural aspects of deities in my life. When I get things, I, I like things that are wood because I think that there's some sort of like I, I'm not an energetic model person. I'm more of like a spirit model person. So I think that like something that's made of wood doesn't like I don't call it the energy, I guess, of the tree, but it's more like the spirit of the tree they're so connected to the land the spirits of the land uh besides just like deities in general they're also just connected to the history and the lore yeah so they're more like allies and mentors for me yeah, much like your uh your fife made of wood <laughs> <laughs> my wonderful fife that i played <laughs> i played bring it year. back right to the beginning <laughs> <laughs> if only i knew where my fife was i would play it for you yeah, apologies for the chaos this episode. Hopefully you learned something or at least find it enjoyable to listen to us. I will not apologize for the chaos. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, I'm being lyrical about hedgerows. Um, yeah, oh, we should probably tell us um, if you want to uh, discuss science or spirituality with us, we have a Discord, which you can yes. join. Um, you can also yeah. follow us on Instagram where we occasionally update with episode um, reminders when we remember. But do tell us if you pass the hedgewitch test to know how many hedgewitches there are. Come talk to us. Come join our Discord. All right. And now we play the outro music, I guess. <laughs> Bye. Bye.